Welcome to The Crescent Method, a podcast focused on organic, sustainable cannabis in an era of turmoil and misinformation. I'm your host, Scott, and together with my wife, Sarah, we are Crescent Soil Services. You know, I think there's a lot of correlations between your experience in aid work and, and some of the phenomenons that we're seeing in cannabis. You know, so we're working with Haitian like interpreters as well. So we're like, okay, it's a microscopic animal that lives in your water. <laughs> that you can't see. <laughs> that you yeah. can't see, it's killing you. Yeah. They're like, okay, yeah. it's that, but it's definitely not voodoo. You know why they might want to accuse you of pushing a narrative? Because they can refute a narrative. Right. They can't refute a microscope. Ooh. That's the... Today we delve into ecological topics, climate issues, and the synergy between aid work and cannabis growing in California. Today's guest is ecological warrior Jesse Baker. Jesse started an international NGO and has done some remarkable aid work in some of the most remote regions of Haiti. Thanks for joining us, Jesse. Yeah, hey man, my pleasure. You know, I think there's a lot of correlations between your experience in aid work and, and some of the phenomenons that we're seeing in cannabis. And obviously, you know, my path crossing with yours was a, was a remarkable trajectory change for where I was going and where I ended up. After going to Haiti with you back in 2010, I almost became dysfunctionally overwhelmed with the concept of how to produce food in an undesirable environment. And I became really hyper aware of the situation of water on the planet. And so, you know, I think there was a tremendous learning experience for me there to see what's going on outside of my really insulated white privileged world, you know. Um, and so after I came back from Haiti with you, I really just dove head first into the concept of agriculture and really pretty much made that my main focus and now here we are. And so, you know, I think a lot has progressed since you and I went to Haiti back in, I believe it was 2010, maybe. 2011 is when you went. 2011, right? And so so a lot's happened in your world and a lot's happened in my world. And and even though we've gotten really far apart, I think there's a tremendous similarity in in the experiences we're having with the outside world. So I guess just to give a little background, I was at a concert and, and Jesse had his organization there set up with a little aquaponics set and of course I came around the corner thought it looked funny and made fun of it and uh, Jesse shot right back well if you got a problem with it why don't you come to Haiti and build a better one and so naturally I took you up on that offer and we went to Haiti did not at all expect to see what I saw there and definitely got at least 10 times more than I bargained for and that was a pretty profound experience so give us a little background as to how you even ended up in Haiti, maybe what some of your original goals were. Yeah, so Haiti, I get asked that question, why Haiti a lot? Um, And there's a number of ways to look at it, uh, you know, like, and answer that question. Um, The the original reason that we went was, I don't really want to say a fluke, but it certainly wasn't planned. We had started our our nonprofit and we were trying to figure out ways to have money, raise money, we decided on a fundraiser with, you know, just music, alcohol, just kind of have a party. 
while we were in that planning process, the earthquake happened, and it just didn't feel right to, to have this party at that time. And my, my area of academic focus, this is right as I was finishing up my PhD, my area is Latin America and the Caribbean. I had done all my research in Venezuela. But it's sort of my job to know and understand the history, the, the colonial history at least, of all of the Americas. And, and I knew that an earthquake of that magnitude in Haiti was going to be catastrophic and devastating, which obviously it was. So <clears throat> we decided to turn our fundraiser into a Haiti fundraiser. And I just spur of the moment, as I'm talking to the crowd about what it is that we're doing, I had kind of thought about it, but I hadn't discussed it with my partner who I would founded the org with or anything. I just made the statement, this all my bunch of my friends, family, there's some Haitians that are there, and I just made the statement that within the year we would establish a project on the ground in Haiti. And I didn't know what I was getting myself into or anything, but I just felt like that was the appropriate thing to do. So <clears throat> when I went, I didn't really know what I was doing. I mean, I had educational background, you know, I was getting a PhD in this stuff. I'd lived in Venezuela for a while, traveled all over. I'd seen a lot of stuff, but I didn't speak French, didn't obviously know Creole, wasn't really well versed in the history of Haiti. Uh, but nonetheless, I had made this statement and honestly, nobody would have helped me to task if I didn't go. They would have been like, hey, wait a minute, didn't you say you were going to go and have this project, and you didn't? But for some weird reason, I felt like I said it, I have to do it. Anyway, before we got to that space, I had, you know, said this thing. And during our, uh, our fundraiser, we just thought, well, let's just, you know, have some bands play a bar, and we'll make money, and then we'll have an operating budget. So we started planning it. The earthquake happened in Haiti in 2010. So we turned it into a, to a, cause, a Haiti huh? fundraiser, right? And we raised two, like two grand. And, and at the time, I didn't even know to it did the math. It ended up being like a little over $2,000. I didn't want us to be like, look how awesome we are. We raised money for Haiti, yay us, and then forgot about Haiti. So you know, at the event, we had some Haitians that were there, a bunch of people I knew that were there. I was like, within the year, we'll have a project on the ground in Haiti. And I had never been there. And, you know don't speak French and obviously didn't speak Creole, you know, <laughs> it was just it's like, holy shit. So that's been the one that's been the most compelling, but we also did music festival greening and we had a sustainable restaurant program and okay. gave a lot of talks and we had like, we did a lot of stuff, it was cool, but it was just really hard to monetize during that, you know, as an NG, as a non-profit in a who you know, not what you know area yeah. during this, you know, recession, right, you know. But we squeaked it out, and uh, that's where we met Scott. Stumbled up and was like, yeah, I'll go to Haiti with you guys. Because <laughs> we were at this music <coughs> festival. I'm it's like, aquaponic system that our buddy Tom wanted to build down in Haiti. It's amazing. It's uh, probably one of the places in the world that needed the most help. Yeah, it still does. It's got the biggest obstacles, too, you know? It's, like, it's highly complex, for sure. Definitely seems like it's got some of the biggest agriculture. Uh, Hurdles that exist, like even yeah. before the earthquake. I'm yeah, just, I'm no, seeing like true. topographic maps of the Dominican lining up to Haiti and the way they deal with deforestation and whatnot. It's eye-opening. It's a challenge.
So after a couple years of doing the water filters, which it was not no benefit, you know, there was a benefit, but there was tr tremendous obstacles. But then there came a point you realized that this is not the path. Right. And, and so you then, you then determined that allowing them to catch their own water, what, on small, so it used to be one big cistern that they all shared from, and so how, what was that transition? So I actually will say that I think the, the water filters were of ne overall net negative. So you'd say negative impact. Yeah. That's heavy, Jesse Baker. <laughs> yeah, I would say. We can't quantify that, mm -hmm. so I don't know. But that's one of the problems. So, and to not get too far here, but one of the problems is that you have to clean these water filters in a very particular way, which is not difficult, but it requires you to be shown. If that, if that water filter is then cleaned by somebody that didn't watch me show them how to clean it, it could be cleaned wrong. And I would say that it is, they have all been cleaned wrong, which means you're probably putting cholera water in one end, potentially, of, you know, and getting cholera water out the other end, right? So it adds, so it adds a false security. Even if it's in the middle, exactly. it's getting re-exposed. Sure. Right, right. Because, it's, because it's dirty. If you got cholera at the tip on the end of the thing, yeah. you because you didn't clean it right, so you didn't wash the syringe, this whole thing, right? You know, which is the problem, is that it's right. not that easy, you know? And so, or they're only good for X amount of time, which means that they should be registered and then collected after X amount of time, or actually before X amount of time. There's nobody does that, right? And you can't right. do that. So there's people out there potentially where it's like doesn't work anymore and they think that it does. They can be utilized as because they can they serve so many people and it's cost prohibitive to give each family one, you have to put somebody in charge in order to clean water that can be used for everyone, which means one person now is in charge and you're creating a little bit of community division. We've seen that. Uh, when we put the filters on big 55-gallon drums, we've seen that, although it works out a lot better, that they're vulnerable to being broken a little bit easier. One of them got blown away in a windstorm and it snapped a couple of the little valves off, and then it's like, well, now we can't use it, you know? So there's a lot of problems with it that um, are overall net negative. Some are just problems that prevent it from being used, so it fails to be a positive. But <clears throat> the reality is, is it doesn't address their needs long-term. Right. And, right. and complicates the situation and frustrates. Exactly. And now starts to create almost trade wars. Exactly. Or, or but if you can, if you can be that one org that goes in, because every Haitian has dealt with some international group, whether it's a church or some volunteer thing, leadership development from a school or whatever, they've they've come across someone who wants to do their thing. Right. right. We came up with this plan in Colorado or Idaho or California or Wisconsin or wherever, and this is what we're going to do. And like, yeah, we don't need that. And like, but this is what we're doing. So yeah. that seems you're welcome. That seems <laughs> that seems that seems to be the universal capitalist model. We're dealing with that a lot in cannabis. Is you get some white businessman that invents a problem to create a solution to sell you something. And so there's these big trade shows about, no, this is the solution to your problems, you know? And it's almost never relevant or actually helpful and doesn't move to a forward. Absolutely. Uh, How that didn't die with Phototrons is amazing to me. The little... <laughs> I saw one of those yesterday. Right? There's a little cat, a little vertical lighting cabinet for a little... Yes. I never heard of what that was. I saw one on Instagram yesterday. It's like they sold them in high times in like yeah. the mid-90s. Like yeah. you could buy this little yeah. box. The little, and little like hexagonal yeah. or octagonal. But now they're, they're literally recreating large-scale models of that. And being like, oh yeah, this is just what you need to have a 
Yeah, grow a safe, plants. clean environment for your indoor plants that are completely unsustainable to grow, and you know all this and these fan, you know, it's it's pretty wild. But there's, like you said, no consideration of the long-term infrastructure problems that are created by that. And, right. You know, plus like who's going to be able to pull one of those, you know, mini trailer-sized run like you know, containers into a space? Like that's just not that easy to do either. Where do you have a space to do that? Yeah. After three years of distributing the water filters and even having an evolution of the water filters, so you did improve the way they were used, you did improve the success, but it seemed to be obstacles that were too great, and so then you completely sidestepped into a totally different model, and that did begin to work, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, so we saw these rain catchment systems that were way more, so they've been catching rain in Haiti, or in this area for a while, the deforestation in Haiti is yeah. astronomically severe, and, and particularly in this area. Now, um, it's been deforested to use for agriculture. There's a whole range of historical dynamics yeah. <laughs> in fact this that we don't need to go into now, you know, but without the trees, topsoil rushes away, making agriculture a little bit more difficult. Climate change is also um, we see now that, for example, one indicator is that coffee needs to be planted further up in order to grow. Haiti used to be the world's number one producer of coffee. At any rate, so um, coffee, it now has to, plants have to be replanted in higher up elevations because of climate change. Climate change is bringing less storms to Haiti that are more unpredictable and when they hit, yet bring much further intensity, meaning much stronger wind and a lot more rain, right? Yeah. So, but dysfunctionally concentrated to where, it, yeah, it's a mess. Yeah, so it used to be that you could count on a couple of rainy seasons every year and you knew more or less when they were gonna come, and so then you could plant your crops and you could grow your crops and everything was basically fine, right? You know, but now with climate change being what it is, you can't, like, it, there's no reliable rainy season and the storms don't come nearly as often and when they do come, they come with much greater ferocity and a lot more rain. Mm -hmm. um, where Haitians, or I shouldn't say Haitians, but people in this area where they get water has traditionally been from streams that are also used for bathing, doing laundry, and watering animals. So that water is it's contaminated, it's polluted, it's not good. I have video footage of, you know, donkeys walking through yeah. water that's being, where people yeah. are washing clothes and then there's someone's, you know, washing yeah. themselves and they're collecting drinking water. The only reason I knew about the, the food issue and the deforestation uh, was reading, a, I believe, a Newsweek article 10 years before the earthquake and they showed pictures of the deforestation between the Dominican to the Haiti border where you could just see where exactly where Haiti yeah. started because all the trees were right. Yeah, that's a pretty dead. famous photograph and that concept is and that's how a lot of people that was there has been their introduction to Haiti prior to the earthquake happening is that exact concept. Agricultural development in Haiti has been severely compromised by deforestation and a lot of the reason that it, it, it's so deforested and it's difficult to say to what degree there are academics that are looking at there you know the the standard thing is that they've lost 90% of or 98% of their forests Jesus. right you know that's the standard you know there's only 2% of their original forest land left 
what part of hey i've been to the dominican republican areas where it's just rocks and desert and you know so i'm sure part of haiti was naturally like that without mm -hmm. trees mm -hmm. right. on the flip side what they cook done? food with their with 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 wood in the mountains right in the most inefficient and most and they cook yeah. they have the, you know most the traditional way to cook anything and i'm not you're not roasting meat directly over over coals but i mean boiling water they'll use uh charcoal to do that you know to boil to cook your rice or to to cook oil to fry your goat meat or chicken or whatever it is that you want to fry you know so in an incredibly inefficient way obviously that was one of the most fascinating things for me about them is that you know the only thing i knew about the place was they did a lot of deforestation for charcoal and then you get there and they're using like two or three of the most inefficient styles of burning stove for food production you know it was a yeah, yeah it's not even burning it's three yeah. rocks yeah, and then you like, put a, just keep adding a, sticks a, and then you just keep camp. feeding it in with oh. sticks to, to boil rice right right you know so it's not an efficient way to cook however haiti keep in mind it's the first slave country to yes. overthrow the government and, and fight for their freedom and achieve yeah. their freedom right you know and so the the french were humiliated by that defeat um, and they were stretched thin through Napoleonic Wars during that time and all their, you know, shenanigans and what have you. Um, you know, so they couldn't really come back. Uh, and the United States also were a, a French ally, certainly. Um, we didn't want slaves in the United States to learn that slaves in Haiti fought for their freedom and achieved their own, right? You know, so, and then we decided that there was strategic importance to that that land potentially, you know, so we've had a long-term, a long-held interest in Haiti as well, you know, to hold it down, mm -hmm. you know, so France, uh, because of the, the coup and the overthrow, refused to, to acknowledge Haiti as a country, which meant that the rest of the world <laughs> didn't, didn't acknowledge Haiti as a country, which meant even though they had their own independence, they could never um, actually participate in global trade you know, or any kind of commerce or anything outside. So they've really been hemmed in. And their language, it's very unique. The, you know, Creole, it's the official language that most of the people speak. Um, you know, so that is, is, is problematic, you know, as you're trying to do work outside of, you know, the country as well. So there's been systematic efforts, largely spearheaded, like directed, you know, yeah. by the French government and the U.S. government but also with the Spanish government, the Dominican government, the other governments, you know, the Dutch, and whoever you have in and around the, with influence in the Caribbean to hold Haiti down so that they can't actually participate in regional or global trade, which means they have to use all the resources that they have within their own country. And as a fuel source to cook food, what you have, all you really have is wood. What was it like when you made the transition from water filters to water catchment? Was that pretty seamless or did you then have to go back to investors and supporters and say we're making a direction change or like how was that received and what was yeah, that? I think it was received really positively because mm -hmm. the, you know, to me it was just a no-brainer mm -hmm. like that. So what happened was there was a program that was sponsored by the, the United Nations um, uh, for a little while where they built this new kind of rain catchment system where so typically the rain, the cisterns that you would find in these mountain areas are cubicle and above ground. 
which means that they can shift in time and crack and then leak. And then because they're above ground as well, they'll crumble a little bit. And then the rain catchment system itself is usually made from scavenged materials that are, you know, just kind of cobbled together. I mean, I have photographs of like upside down beach jug, bleach jugs that have the bottom cut out. They're using, used as a funnel with some baling wire that ties it up to a spot that, you know, a piece of metal that had been bent like a, you know, a, a funnel would, you know, then bring it down to another piece of PVC pipe. Yeah, it's not, it's not a modular. It's not working that yeah. well, you know yeah. what I mean? And I've got photos of these things, you know, and, and any stiff wind that comes through there is just going to blow all that shit away, right? So what these, this new design was, is it was a cylinder that was dug deep into the ground, so it's not going to crack because it's a cylinder. It's in the ground, so it's got it's fortified. It's not going to crack and it's not going to leak. And then on the roof, they have PVC piping. You take like a four-inch tube, long, just think eight to ten. Usually we use eight feet sections, and then uh, it's four inches, and then you just slit it down lengthwise, and then you can open it up, and then. When you kind of open it up, I know this isn't going well, to visually work. You open it up, you can slide it on the edge of the corrugated roof and then lash it down with baling wire and then it's solid. And then because the, the tin is corrugated, the roof is corrugated, it, the water flows right into it, no problem. And then you just attach that to a, a, a you know a, a T valve that, that then is a downspout that's PVC. You put it right up against the the building, and then they dig a trench to go over to the cistern, and then have it come up and then um, pop in. You know, and, and it's and solid. Sorry to interrupt, but the corrugation allows the water flow to slow down enough to where it will wind up in there slow enough to catch it all. Right? Yeah. That's what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then what we find out is they actually, these, they're about 5,000 gallons each cistern. And in the rains now, they fill up and they overflow. So now we need to start putting in more cisterns on. Because we'll put them on with like big community centers and churches and schools and things like that. So there's lots of, of, of roof space. And what we found, and this is really freaking cool. So when we started... To, to get to your question about what was it like, yeah. it was empowering nice. because it was like, okay, I, I had had doubts about those filters from point one, mm -hmm. right? Initially, when we first did it, it was like, cool, but I was like, I don't know, like yeah. long term, doesn't really seem right. You got to start somewhere. Then that time when you were there, yeah. when you came down on our second trip, was I don't know if you remember, there was that woman came over and we were like, yeah, use the She's like, okay, cool, and she did it. And I was like, she's like, made the, the, the look. She did the math, math, the time math. In her head I was like, oh shit. So this this thing, this, this is a this is a woman that's holding four babies, doesn't speak English. She we interrupted like, her day to do this demonstration, and she's not really super stoked to even like this isn't a celebratory for she got shit to do, you know. And and so we like fill it up, and just this woman's face as she stood there watching how slow the water came out. That's when I think I got kind of overwhelmed. I was like, this is an obstacle that cannot be overcome, you know? Like, I personally was like, this is a lot. How do we, where do we go from here? So yeah. what we did do, <laughs> and, and we're going to kind of deviate yeah. here, but that's what we do, is we started putting them on 55-gallon drums. Yeah. So that you had much, and we put three filters on a 55-gallon yeah. So we drum. increased head pressure to speed them up. And so then it came out way faster. So each one sped up, and then you had three valves that you're getting out of. So it would only take what took 45 minutes, might take like eight, 10 minutes, you know? At any rate, 
the whole that whole thing sucked anyways. We didn't want to do that. So because we saw the this the, the real issue was kids are walking three to five hours to collect water from these crappy systems, you know, yeah. like like contaminated water systems. Water sources, right? You know, so if we can collect rainwater, that's like a big deal, right? You know, so um, we saw this new cistern and this new like rain catchment apparatus and I was like immediately I was like that's what we should be doing mm -hmm. and so I asked about it and they were like yeah that's a program that the UN sponsored but then they dropped because we're so far away it's too difficult you know it's a pain in the ass to get all the way out here blah 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 but this is what we want yeah. So then we would start, that's when I was like, okay, that's, that's what they want, that's what we should do. It made so much more sense mm -hmm. to me. Um, and so it felt good, right? And in terms of conveying that message to people, it was just like, hey, here's a better way to do it. And they're like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, cool. We're going to support that. Easy. But uh, yeah, the, the, so, there's going to be some conflict though. Yeah. <laughs> because the, the water filters are the brand darling social media. After we started building these things, we had, we started doing community meetings and I just open-ended asked them to address, you know, to list what are your most pending problems and rank them in order of importance. And every meeting that we had, the number one problem was drinking water. Number two was water for agriculture. Number three was healthcare, and then number four was education. Healthcare and education were sometimes, you know, like we're not really sure which is more important than the yeah. other. They're both pretty important and they should be there, but neither yeah, of those yeah, two yeah. is as important as drinking water and water for agriculture. Um, <clears throat> the water for agriculture is really interesting. So, usually, what they had done in the past is that we know the rains are going to come every, you know, like April, so in late March we're going to plant seeds, blah, 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 however that works on our farmer. Predictable farming you know, techniques. Right, yeah. exactly. You know, but you, you know yeah. right, you know, we get yeah. two rainy seasons a year, so this is when we're going to plant, this is what we're going to grow, and this is when we're going to harvest, and we can pretty much count on it, right? So that's no longer the case. What they've been able to do, though, now, is that they can maintain little seedlings with the... Uh, cistern because they can have little plastic bags. I'd like to see it be something different, but right now it's little plastic bags. Yeah. Yeah. They have little bits of soil and they're growing seedlings in these, you know, kind of shade cloth little cobbled together structures from little sticks that are amongst these little banana trees. And then when the rains come, they have seedlings, they go plant those and it's dramatically improve their agricultural yeah. productivity. So, so they've moved from a direct so timing model with natural irrigation to having to do a nursery model because they have to germinate a seed by hand and then when the rain does come that's when they can get it to establish in the field. So they've been forced into a like a transplant model because the rains are so unpredictable. And which they wouldn't be able to do if they didn't have the system. Exactly. So it's like so these. So this is and that was not heavy, right? That was not planned. Yeah. That wasn't a planned thing. That's their identification. I can barely imagine a pot grower growing off the rains. Done. They can't do it without water delivery. Most eighties pot grower.
another epidemic in October that was a direct result of the response. Um, soon found out that it was actually through the UN that cholera was brought to Haiti. Um, I met a guy who was with an organization that was distributing water filters. I met him at this event in Orange County. And we talked for a while, and he hooked me up with his connection in Haiti so that I could get some of those water filters and distribute them. So I thought, that seems pretty easy. People are doing it. Like, how hard can it possibly be, right? You know, so raised some money, raised a few thousand dollars to pay for our trip. And we go down and we bought, I don't know, 25, 30 of these things, and we distributed them. Stayed at this place called Haiti Communitaire. Uh, at the time, it was actually called Grassroots United. And through them, I was able to coordinate and, and locate people that were deep in the mountains in an area where there, there was no, uh, no response, no aid, nothing happening, but people were dying from cholera. So we get back there, and, this, and despite the fact there's an internationally funded nationwide education program, two months into a cholera epidemic, and we go into these areas, and they hadn't heard what cholera was. They're literally like, what's going on? Why are we dying? And we're like, you have cholera. Right. Okay, what's cholera? In, right now, I'm out of my element. Oh, gee, I, I, uh, good question. I mean, I know the basics. It's a bacteria. What's bacteria? Or like, oh yeah, okay. It's a, it's a, you know. So we're working with Haitian, like interpreters as well. So they're like, okay, it's a microscopic animal that lives in your water. <laughs> that you can't see. <laughs> that you yeah. can't. That's killing you. Yeah. They're like, okay, yeah. it's that, but it's definitely not voodoo. No, it's like, not voodoo. No, <laughs> like, they're like, uh, yeah. So we're like, okay, this is this immediately the so communication has taken on a whole different yeah. thing that I could have ever really understood <laughs> at that time, right? But boom, you know, you're hooked. And yeah. it's one of those places where. You go, and, and Scott, I know you've only been once, but I'm sure you've wanted to go back many times, and we've had that discussion a few times, you know, but it's like when you get that snag, it's like, okay, i got to go back and see what's up. Plus, they asked, you got to come back, you can come back. Right. And I said yes, and so then again, <clears throat> it's like I said it, so i got to go back. So, um, But what I was exposed to down there, <clears throat> they call Haiti the, uh, the International Republic of NGOs, NGO being non-governmental organizations. So this is people that are going there to do work. A good chunk of those are churches. Another good chunk of them are just people going down, thinking they're going to do something. I'm going to build a school. I'm going to do whatever, right? Give help. Um, right. And then there's also all kinds of aid organizations all over the world that raise money to help countries in need. And Haiti, of course, as we all know, is one of those quote-unquote countries in need. So there's that, and then there's the UN, the Red Cross, the... You know, Doctors Without Borders, Oxfam, all these huge organizations that are doing all kinds of stuff as well. So, you know, there's this huge kind of just flurry of activity that goes on by people who are there to quote-unquote help Haiti. And what I realized is that nobody knows what the fuck they're doing. <laughs> it's all just kind of make it up as you go, pretend, and then just move through. And, and more of the emphasis seems to be on satisfying... Yeah donors and people on the other end of the of the financial spectrum than it is on solving the problems on the ground and understanding what needs to be done. Anyway, whole huge, I feel like I've just gone on no, and you're on, good. but a whole huge like set of experiences ensued from that point on. But that's that's what brought me to <coughs> Haiti originally is that I just made that statement. Hearing <laughs> <laughs> you explain that really encapsulated for me the idea that those people are then 
creating a negative impact on the already sketchy infrastructure that exists. So if you're not there creating some sort of sustainability to help move things forward, they're in such a critical yeah. situation where you're just kind of taking their resources. What, you're 100% correct. And what I say all the time is there is wow. no neutral, there's nothing neutral. There's no, I was going to say no neutral impact, but that's an impossibility of terms. If something is neutral, there's no impact, right? And there's always an impact. It's either positive or negative. Like if, you're not, if you're not making it, when you add everything together, and I don't even necessarily believe in that, that if you add everything up and overall you're in the positive, everything's good. I don't, I'm not saying that. But if you're not in the positive, you're in the negative. <laughs> if you're in the negative, get the fuck out. I right. mean, seriously. Like, right. and, and that right. doesn't mean you can't make mistakes. You have to make mistakes. You're going to make mistakes. For sure. Of course. But... It, it, it's the process that you go through of making those mistakes and are you learning from them and are you able to correct them that gets you to that positive side. And, and yeah, I mean, most people in Haiti that are there to quote unquote help or work, yeah. they're there for themselves. Yeah. You know, and, and I've, I've said this many times, like I feel like I get more out of my experience in Haiti than anybody. Right. My Haitian friends disagree with me at times for sure and I understand why. But at the same time, they don't really know how much I benefit from going there. And I don't mean benefit like, oh, I opened my eyes to see whatever. I mean like, I can come back, apply for a job, and they'll go, oh shit, you went down to Haiti and did some hardcore work. You're hired. Right. You got A, B, and C shit that we just assume is there because you went down and did that. Like, I can write a book. I'm doing this. I'm, like, I'm, there's all, like, I'm gonna, I'm, we just got funny for shit that's all based on my experience in Haiti, more or less. I shouldn't say all, but a lot of it is. It's a know? life of work. And that's what Haitians will say, you profit. And when they say you profit, it doesn't mean that your net income is greater than your, or whatever, that space is between your, you know, your net is between your gross and your, your balance, right? You know, so it's, you're improving your life. My life is improved by going to Haiti. So just to give a little bit of context, so, so after the earthquake happens, Aid workers from the United States fly over there with their backpacks, sleeping rolls, and those first few people kind of camp wherever. They end up setting up what's called HC or Haiti Communitaire, but at the time it was Grassroots so International. When, when you were there, was it was it they Grassroots just changed United or they just changed it? To they just changed it, right? Yeah. So, yeah, actually, it was some Burning Man types, and I'm not going to name any names, but sure. they they went down and really it's very impressive what they were able to accomplish mm -hmm. like I, the the original guy that went down was was there after yeah like three days yeah he, four he, days he, after he, four he, days after yeah. the earthquake he's he he like he knows people and he was able to and he went down with like uh, i think mean like 600 bucks yeah. a bivy sack and a satellite phone yeah and six months later they have this property where you know people like me can go down and we paid 15, 20 bucks a night, and we got a little bit of food and a place to sleep and people to network it's with. safe, yeah. And, it, you know, and whereas everything else in Haiti, it's one of those places, it's, it's not cheap. It's super expensive because you got to pay for the security, right? And all the, there's no, like, tourism infrastructure like Costa Rica where there's palapas yeah. available for 20 yeah. bucks a night or something. So this place was desirable. Right. And it's been awesome. And, and whenever I would go back, that's where I would stay. So what's kind of remarkable about the situation is the first wave of people put out a remarkable effort. I mean, the first guy that set that place up was literally sleeping on the side of a ditch in a third world country after an earthquake to set up a safe space for other aid workers to base out of, right? So they immediately start with a really heavy effort of community. 
that slowly devolves into less well i wouldn't say you know? devolves yeah no. not yet not because yet. What, what happens the first couple of years and when you were there it there's a high level of community and it's a lot of people coming in it's they're almost not even coming to haiti and i can't really even speculate and say mm -hmm. honestly because i wasn't there but after such a traumatic event you know it's it is haiti but it's a different world mm -hmm. right you know that kind of 250,000 people died like that. And it was widespread. It wasn't just poor people. It was mostly poor people. Most Haitians are poor people. Yeah. Yeah, it was huge. The government <laughs> was rendered incapacitated. Like thousands of government workers died. The, the, the government mm -hmm. building collapsed. You know, wealthy people died as well. And, and, and people who are in high-ranking decision-making positions in, in, because there were all kinds of international organizations that were in Haiti already. So you have people who are able to come in and, and the guys that went down, the people that went down, um, you know, they had had experience in Peru and some other places responding, so they kind of knew what was going on, and, and they were able to, you know, it's impressive what they were able to pull off. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> the, the, the big turn, where if, like, you use the term devolve, and I, I, that's not a term I would use, but the shift happened is that, is that in time, Haiti no longer was a disaster recovery zone, and the people that went down and founded this organization went from they they weren't able to transition along with that like it was they were built and founded on disaster response and then when the world outside of the the community the, the haiti what is then haiti communitaire um I don't even know if we should be using the term yeah. <laughs> yeah. identifying it. It's sure. a weird one that I think about, I though, because I'm actually writing a book about my experiences. And I was like, what I'm so, going to not use? Like, people are no, going to figure this shit out. No. There's only one spot. So you know what? I'd say include this little deviation. I'm going to just keep going. <laughs> if anyone wants to figure it out, they'll figure it out. So, But I'm not going to say names of people. But sure. at any rate... Um, Impressive what they pulled off, and I found incredibly useful. But there was a failure, failure to transition the approach to respond to long-term development needs, which are different from the immediate needs responding to a, a, a disaster, right? And with, also, there was the perfect storm of, you know, like, oh my God, the intensity of what happened in Haiti. There was a flood of money devoted. Mm -hmm. You know, people could use, the, and the, that's also kind of the, like, just past the initial uptick of social media. And we, there was yeah. Facebook, and there sure. was... You know, there wasn't Instagram, but there was the ability to, to connect with people and raise money for your trip. And so people would come down with four or $5,000 and they'd still show up at Haiti Community and be like, I want to do something. You know, and they're building like little vertical gardens made out of, mm -hmm. you know, plastic pop, soda pop bottles strung up and they're growing herbs out of and they're trying, you know, they're going into City Soleil and they're communicating with people and a lot mm -hmm. of buzz and shit's going on. After a while... The Haiti allure wore off, kind of something that people called Haiti fatigue, so there's less money available. Mm -hmm. People who are going down there no longer are going down there as often or as, you know, or for as long a period of time. Um, and then the people who are going down there, as life normalizes outside of the base of, you know, where Haiti Communitaire is, they're able to find, their other options are opening up, and they're, mm -hmm. they're, they're the people that have come back, and so now they've decided to stay, so they're going to find their own apartment, right? You know, so... There's less people staying at this base, which is one of the ways in which they would generate income. Mm -hmm. um, and then there wasn't the leadership available. There was a, you know, like the 
the typhoon in the Philippines happened, so the leader went there, and then the significant amount of people went there, and then the earthquake in, in Nepal happened, they opened up a base there, you know, so there were these different sites, and they kind of spread themselves a little bit too thin, and there wasn't enough attention given to the original site that was in Haiti, and there was a leadership void, and, and, and they just couldn't really navigate the, the complex dynamics of, of what the challenges are in that area. And so, like, the initial effort was tremendous by those first rounds of people, and then... They did rent it. They paid. Yeah. So, but but meaning like you know they 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 put a stake. They worked hold. very hard. To yeah. About that niche. So that first so that first effort was a tremendous effort to make this safe place for people to come in, and then you know a wide variety of things that can happen from there with different NGOs that have good motives or bad motives. But let's talk more about um, what was it like when you first got in country and decided that you wanted to now go outside of the comfort range of aid work where everybody was staying within like what a couple mile radius from yeah so when I first got there um, that was pretty clear to me right off the bat you know that I didn't want to just do something where everyone else was working because I just had this feeling that there were a lot of a, a lot of needs going unmet in places where people just weren't going I didn't know where that would be or how to find those those people and that was actually the thing that I stressed out about the most when I got to Haiti. It was like, because otherwise, why even go? I could right. have just been like, here, here's three, thirty-five hundred bucks or four hundred sure. or whatever, you know, and do something cool with it. I'm gonna go to the beach. <clears throat> yeah, 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 I went to Haiti and handed out shit that anybody could. Fucking, you know, there's no reason for you know. So, um, and fortunately, because of the people that I was around at at that time, Grassroots United, uh, I was able to meet people who were working, you know, deep in, 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 well, that weren't working but had connections with things that were happening far away. Um, you know, so, I guess, what was the question then? Like, why did, why, why what was the decision-making process? Or why did I choose to want to get in, in a remote area to do work <clears throat> there? I was just, I was just trying to segue to the fact that, um, you know, most of the aid work was, was in a couple mile radius of the actual safe zone so so the first wave of assistance was seemed pretty localized to the Port-au-Prince area really centralized to where the um, the headquarters for the aid relief was but the work that you did was 40 miles east in the mountains that took an entire day of travel and so right. there was a tremendous disconnect between you know what you would consider the epicenter of the earthquake and then all of that aid work from around the world that came in was fantastic but it really focused on, you know, well, a the thing of that, right, and that's okay. Yeah. So the the immediate aftermath of the earthquake was one thing that was the epicenter was in Laogon, which is right there by Port-au-Prince. So mm -hmm. that's where the the earthquake impact was. So maybe I should approach it like this. There's a, a couple of different, two different things that happened uh, catastrophically in Haiti in 2010. There was the earthquake in January, which there was an immediate response to. Part of that response, the United Nations, the way that they work, different teams from different countries come, and they, they're tasked with different types of things that they have to do. The team from Nepal came. They didn't apparently set up their uh, sewage system right. It ruptured. Raw sewage gets into the water. This is in like October. Now cholera spreads throughout the country. 
kind of like wildfire. So the original response to the earthquake was in the Port-au-Prince area. But then when cholera hit, it spread because the lack of, you know, just sanitation hygiene practices in Haiti aren't <laughs> you know, what they could actually mind it. it is, it is. Yeah. You know, so earthquake cholera already having major Haiti was very There's there are a lot of difficulties in Haiti throughout its inception. I won't even get into all that stuff. Mm -hmm. At any rate, um, so then you have cholera spreads. The response to cholera is what you say. Well, the response to the earthquake was focused right in the immediate epicenter area. Then the response to cholera focused on urban areas. That's where most of the people are. That's where the effort is faced. I didn't understand that subtle kind of difference that people in deeply rural areas were not being their issues weren't being addressed at all. I didn't know that. I just knew that there were people whose needs weren't being met. And I didn't understand all of the, the nuances. So even before you headed deep into the mountains where no one had gone, you didn't realize that that was the actual context? Didn't. Know, yeah, I just was open to learning, right? Right, right? Like, to me, I had no presumption of what the context was. Right. I just, like, go and figure it out, learn it, and understand it, right? Yeah. You know, I didn't, I didn't know at that time that we would go on a four-hour Sure. Five-hour hike to hit the first village, right? Yeah. You know, we were just going into rural areas. I didn't know the dynamic of Haiti existed the way that it did, mm -hmm. or the reasons why. I since learned, but at that time I did not know. So, <clears throat> um, it was important to me to get to a place where our contribution would be felt the most. And uh, I spent, that was the, the the first half of my trip was just trying to coordinate and find that right. place. And I was a, a, a bit, uh, you know, I didn't think it was going to happen after the first few days, and I thought I might have just messed up. And I was like, damn, might have wasted a bunch of money on my travel here when I could have just given that money to this effort that's right. doing something good. Right. Effort X, whatever, there are all kinds of things happening. Which seemed kind of redundant in town, so I think what you did was really unique in that you went far outside the comfort levels of every other, you know, international aid relief. And, you know, when I went with you, which would have been your third year, I think, you know, second year. So I went the second year, and even still, that was probably one of the most difficult um, mass transportation navigations I've ever experienced in my entire life, just trying to get from Port-au-Prince to the Papery, how do you say it? Papery. Papery region, which was... Like 42 miles, maybe, I think, right? Yeah, but it was not easy. It's not far, but it seemed like a lifetime away. It took us, I mean, six and a half hours to get six, seven, I mean, it was unreal journey. Yeah. It <laughs> felt like the most dangerous The hike itself, it's not like you're on a hiking trail in the States that's been maintained by some volunteer group of hiking nerds, right? Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's people that have just been scrambling through, and, you know, so it's, they're rough. They're rough trails. It's not easy going, you know, to, to get to get back there. We take motorcycles now. But before then, so it's a you know it's a six hour journey into the old country. Then you spend the night in a half built house, and then you drive up as far as you can up the mountain, and then have about a what a four hour hike or something. Yeah. So now you're, you know, an entire day away from Port-au-Prince. You've hiked 
four and a half, five hours, you've gone up a few thousand foot of elevation, and now you get to these rural villages to let these people know that you're here to save them from the animal in the water that they can't see, right? right. So I think what really blew me away is... Here's a new con. Before we go into why you're dying, there's a little something called science you need to know about. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have a place for me to crash? We brought it up. So the, exact, so the exact exchange is, you know, you go through this remarkable effort to try and do this remarkable help to these people that really definitely need help. They're definitely compromised. They definitely don't know what's going on. And then us, you know, Blancs, as they refer to, are trying to describe to them why this water filter is needed. And so the exchange becomes, well, there's a bacteria in the water. Well, well what's a bacteria? Well, it's a microscopic organism. We don't have a translatable word for organism. Can we use animal? Sure. Okay, so there's a microscopic animal in the water that you can't see that's killing everyone. And to a region that still believes in voodoo, you just communicated to them that the blue hats put voodoo in the water and that's what's killing everybody. But we're somehow the solution. And so it's like when you talk about hurdles to overcome and what you thought, you know, it, it becomes this just like tidal wave of, for me, it felt like unovercomable right. <laughs> consequences. Yeah. Like how, and then you're trying to then convince them to use this water filter that you know, and it and it and it just becomes this. Which cascade. actually ended up being through a language barrier. Not good for them. <laughs> through through a language and a remarkable trust barrier. Right. More yeah. importantly. But that's the key, Scott, is the trust, because with the trust comes open communication, and the only way that you get the trust is by returning and, sh and, and earning that trust. Yeah. And, and that's what it is. Like, we're there. Like, it's not that they don't understand science. They're fucking smart. They know what's up, you know? It's just that we came in with a different language that needed to be translated. And yes, that I get a kick out of the, the you know, little tiny animal living in yeah, the yeah. water that, you know, and then, oh, okay, sure, but it's not voodoo. Okay, right, right. cool. Yeah, sure. You know, but like, we work through that, you know, and, and honestly, I think the whole voodoo thing is a little overstated in Haiti. A lot of people, you know, are always voodoo, 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 you know, sure. and it's there. It's a thing for yeah, sure. But, you know, um, but it was difficult to communicate. Absolutely. Need. Oh, no, no, your point yeah. is well made. Yeah. But, but it's how you break through those barriers is through time. Right. And, and, and this is the problem that we see. And maybe this is where we're starting to see pull in some of the overlap is that, you know, the, the, the workers, kind of the uh, disaster relief or international aid, like, kind of playboys almost, they're just bounced all over the world, and they spend a few weeks here and a few weeks there and a few weeks in this place, and they Instagram all about it, and, hey, I'm in Kuala Lumpur for 24 hours, who's got recommendations, you know, mm -hmm. and... Like, they make sure everyone knows they're out and about doing their work. And, Saving the world. And, and, but they're not staying in one community long enough to know all of the issues because you can't start learning those issues until you're communicating deeply with people that's only going to come after you have trust, that's only going to be built through a series of events that take time to experience, right? Repetition of you coming and saying exactly. you're going to help. and yeah. showing that I'm for fucking real. And then even acknowledging when you make the mistakes, where it was like, you know what? These filters are not the answer. We need to do this. Right. And then they go, yes, that's right, thank you. And that, you know? and that was remarkably impactful. You know?
so it's like you you know you started that and and you've started with the water filters which was an immediate need for the contamination issue you've evolved that into this water catchment system and i've now through your process and through your journey watched a group of people go from pretty compromised from a contamination from an earthquake to being some of the first ecological refugees on the planet you know and, and this is and and, and how, how do we even be able to start dissecting this in a way that can be applied to the current context with the obstacles we're up against because the issues I'm up against in my work is the same kind of egocentric I'm saving the world model that's actually not helping is also negatively affecting all of agriculture in that you have people that are propped up to champion processed products or what have you to go say that we're doing this aid work to maintain these industries that have been created around these situations and what is actually working and meanwhile you have actual humans that are on the verge of remarkable catastrophe well and, so and we're still in a point when we're denying one that our aid work isn't working or that our agriculture infrastructure isn't working and also denying that there's legitimate changes that needed to be acted upon immediately meanwhile there's real humans that i've stood in front of that i've tried to contribute positively you know from a distance obviously but you know i feel like have tried to maintain some sort of contribution and and keep up on your project and i've just watched this thing unfold and now your latest update is holy shit these people are on the verge of being climate refugees and, and meanwhile we have a government and a general population that still might not believe that there's climate change you know it's like your work can quantify it my work can quantify it we're not even the big famous scientist. I'm a dude that learned how to use a microscope and you're a guy that did real meaningful work. I don't want to hear shit about there's no climate change. I can tell you exactly what it looks like and I can take you there and I can show you those people. And the people that are there that are trying to make a difference, most of them are not helping at all. And so we start to get these tipping points compounding and then they just magnify and you get this really wild exponential slope of shit, you know? Well, Hearing you say that, um, and, and referencing the term climate change, I kind of wonder if that titles the problem. Exactly. Because that kind of fires people up in a multitude of different ways, depending on their beliefs. So, like, what if we what if we say like environmental challenges I like, that we face? I like climate instability. You know, there's many terms, but when you when you use the same term over and over again, I feel like it gets more vague. Correct and doesn't really carry the same meaning. Yeah, it's a weird one because it's, it's you know, think people that work in the, in, in the like social world, like we're trying to bring food and medicine to people who need it, tend to have some attitude against people who are working in the environmental world who are trying to keep oceans clean and, and emissions low. <clears throat> I've talked with people who I rep have huge respect for to this day, you know, about like single-use plastics, and they're like, people are dying, and you're like getting on me about this. I'm like, I'm not, first of all, getting on you about it. I just was having a conversation, you know, but, <laughs> but also like they're not mutually exclusive issues, you know, they can be looked at intertwined and, and, and you know, environmental health will equal social health in, in many ways, but... Um, you know, a lot of the problem is that, that there's 
Scott, when you were talking about the, the challenges that you face, uh, there's, there's very little transparency. Right. You know, in the field that I'm in, there's a huge amount of transparency. The problem with my field is that while transparency is, is lauded and, and you're supposed to have it, there's no real apparatus to measure anything against anything, so there's no, nothing really to hold accountability. Transparency doesn't mean accountability. Right. All right, or you can be like, hey, here's what we're doing. It's cool, right? Sweet, transparent, but here's okay. The fuck does it mean? You know, when you start asking questions, you know, and and you know the climate change issue. When you talk about accountability or or transparency, it's become so politicized, which is ridiculous. But that's what we do with everything. And I feel like I get the point. Like. It's charged. Because it's political, politicized, it's politically charged. I don't know if that's exactly what you're saying, but it sounds like you're, you know, like that term is, it's like... Part of the problem. As soon as it, it, it's, it's thrown out there, people are like, oh, no, fuck you, you're a weirdo, and you yeah. probably support Nancy Pelosi, and I hate that bitch, I'm out. Yeah. You oh, know, it's like, wait, hold on a second. second, that's what yeah. you, wait a minute here, that's a whole thing, I don't even, what? I'm you just know, starting so, to about the environment, man. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't even know who Nancy Pelosi is. <laughs> so, you got a water issue. <laughs> Trying to yeah. figure out why it doesn't rain in March anymore. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't blow in November. That's on term. But whatever you want to call it, science needs to be accepted. Because right. it's, it's the truth. That's what it is. There's no like debate on what the thing is, you know. So yeah, the, the terms and the, the phrasing and then it becomes like what's the narrative that you're spinning and then it gets really into the dude bros that are coming that, out with that's the That's the obstacles I've got. Yeah, I'm gonna tell you how to grow the weed, it's totally yeah. cool, you didn't do it too well, well, whatever, I'll never talk to you again because you don't have money, you know, and you're not gonna spread my name because no one you don't want to admit you failed. So <laughs> I'm good. Yeah. You're good. That's been the one of the biggest obstacles for me is that like I moved into the microscope because I like to be anxious and lose sleep over decisions. So the microscope gave me a black and white answer path for agriculture. So what I do is remarkably black and white, like remarkably black and white. Yeah. And when I try to share no my black and words, there's no words. It's pluses, minuses, and that's it. And and. And people still go, oh, you have a narrative. No, 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 no. I'm trying to communicate my math to benefit you all. There's no narrative or agenda, but that's the, the backlash that I immediately get from me trying to provide the greatest benefit I think is possible, which is doing math for people who don't like to do math. You know why, though, Scott? <laughs> you know why they might want to accuse you of pushing a narrative? Because they can refute a narrative. Right. They can't right. refute a microscope. Ooh. That's the... That's, yeah, that could be it. Yeah. Well, and also, it breaks down, it breaks down um, commerce. Like, you know, a lot of the data that I've come up with, I don't share publicly because it would completely disassemble certain markets, and that's not my goal. My goal is to help farmers. And so if I show the data that I have on compost tea brewing, you know, nobody would sell any more compost tea brewers, and that would be my suggestion, but I don't want that many people pissed off at me for their money. We've already... We've already run up against this with chemicals and, and chemical companies and things like that. And I'm really just trying to help the farmer without getting a target on my back. But I digress. No, you don't. <laughs> yeah, no, I, that's like, the thing. That's an international Because like, I'm going to soon be talking about the reasons why you shouldn't distribute these water filters. Right. Right? And there are... Corporate sponsored organizations, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year um, budgets 
that their entire branding is tied to, you know, sales of product for corporations that have a whole lifestyle brand integrated with this, you know, distribution network that's like all about surfer dudes being cool tied to this distribution of these, of these water filters. Right. So you go in and you be like, oh yeah, by the way, the bedrock of your entire branding, you know, network program is bullshit. They're going to be like, fuck you. Right. You know, like, who? Yeah. What? Right. You know? No, no, no. We do and then I'm the asshole, right? Right. I am the asshole. Exactly. But for me, it's been like, so we went to Haiti in 2011 and that was a remarkable catalyst to overwhelm me with the desire to learn everything I could possible about human survivability and food production, right? And so in 2010, I found, or 2012, the next year, I found Dr. Elaine Ingham, who seemed to be giving some of the best information on the matter. And after one of the workshops, I asked her, I said, you know, you're a scientist involved in these matters and you have the ability to quantify these things. What do you see the actual issue moving into the future as far as like climate change or climate instability? And her answer was, far before all these other things really start to compound in a negative way, we're going to be fighting wars over clean water to grow food. And she says, you know, one of the main aquifers over Texas that runs over a large majority of the middle of the United States, they're estimating has somewhere between 15 to 20 years of water to grow food. And this was back in 2012. So in 2012, she said, I, an I anticipate clean water for food production to be the first biggest issue. And you know, a year or two later, you start having the crisis in Syria, which is in a lot of ways around farmers moving off their land because of climate change and water issues for farmers. So within a couple of years of that statement, that started coming true. Well, most the government, U.S. government nationalized water rights, I believe in 2009, possibly 2008, but I remember it happened right around the stock market crash because I actually had money that I used for a property tied up at that time and I had to write my broker about it and in the last letter I wrote her trying to get everything cashed out before I lost everything I told her I was like listen uh, you know water is going to be a really big issue from what I'm hearing environmentally I had a friend that worked for the Peak Oil Institute at the time and uh, he had you know led me to believe that and so I shared that with this broker and she kind of laughed at me and I remember like knowing that water rights had been nationalized, which means like if you have a large enough pond or a lake on your property in the middle of Montana, like when time comes, that's the government's. Correct. And that's that's a real situation. So I totally agree with her. Yeah. And the op the op well the obstacle I'm up against is that, you know, in two thousand twelve I was you know, I was dropped this information that we're gonna have a significant water supply issue. I put full steam ahead into learning the most water respective agricultural techniques and we regularly save our farmers you know 30 to 70 percent water it's a piece of cake but the obstacle I'm up against just like you is that we have this industry that's built around propping up and promoting products that we can sell to people they're causing a detriment and a lot of people I think lose sight of why I'm doing what I'm doing and why I'm so aggressive with what I'm doing is because you know if if in 2012, seven years ago, we were given this 15 to 20 years now, what are we, 10 to 12 years away from remarkable water shortage? So for the last four years, I've been politely arguing with garden centers that have a tremendous influence on organic agriculture, and they're 
representing some remarkably reckless techniques that is not helping the solution. So as this clock ticks down, I seem to get more and more serious and more and more confrontational, which I understand people don't understand, but what you have to understand is we are running into a significant crisis, we are running into people becoming ecological refugees, and we're over here arguing about Instagram stats, and we're over here arguing about things that are outdated that need to change, that need to evolve into more sustainable practices, that can give organic farmers the success they need, so organic farmers can be sustainable, so that organic farmers can have an effort and an opportunity to make a remarkable change as we're running out of fucking water. You know what I mean? And it's like, how, how do we, how do we go against this status quo in a way that just doesn't get us pushed off the bridge? How do we, how do we go about and make remarkable change at the speed with which people like us are capable to do, amongst a broken ass system that is propping up? Mascots. I mean, it's propping up mascots in front of waste streams, in front of, from my perspective, in the in the organic agriculture sector. And in your situation, there was you know many stories. Uh, one particular is a group that sent down a system to um, one of the communities or one to the aid relief. And for the first two weeks after the earthquake, that project that they were working on was instrumental, and it was remarkable in saving lives. So for a two-week period you had a phenomenal impact on the people with that. But after those two weeks passed, the benefit of that project started to dwindle off, but that created a market for the people of this project to then go around and champion this as aid relief, right? For two weeks, they hit it out of the fucking park. They saved lives for two weeks with this 3D printer making a clip for the IV bag. So there was a, you know, we run into this a lot in our work, and I believe you run into it a lot. There's, there's many examples of aid workers that, you know, started a project that might have provided a benefit, whether big or small, for a short period, and eventually reverted into significant detriment, I would say, or or at least no longer a positive influence. And then these markets start to get created around these situations. And so, I don't know, do you want to speak about that one particularly? So, yeah, well, because as we talked about earlier, um, no, no neutral mm -hmm. impact, right? <laughs> That's an impossibility. So, yeah, there was a, a 3D printing, an organization came down, they, they brought down with them some 3D printers and they identified a need, uh, a clip that hospitals for some reason weren't able to source this little clip that allowed them to, to clip IV bags to the little rack, mm -hmm. right? You know, so... They had the IV bags. They saved a life, I'm sure. Gotcha. You, know, gotcha. you know, maybe they could have just tied them up, but then they might have fallen and it was just a sure. pain in the ass that the clip was helpful. I don't know. Gotcha. But they used it. Right. And, and not only was... The, the thing that's important about this story, I think, is that not only was the clip useful that they were able to provide, but they were able to show they worked with some local Haitians to some degree, I don't necessarily know, I wasn't there, to show them that, hey, look, we're taking plastic and we're running it through this 3D printer to make something that's useful that we've now sold, and so it's commerce. And they just kind of left them right. with that. Okay, you see how it's done, goodbye. <laughs> right, you know, which... <clears throat> is false hope, mm -hmm. you know? And I'm seeing these kids for a couple of years, I'd go down and I'd see these 3D printers at this workshop, and I'm like, what are they doing? You know, like, what, 
Like, they're not being used for anything. And, and I had watched these, I, sh- I call them kids. They're like late teens, early 20s. I shouldn't call them kids at all, you know, but that's how old I am. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, and they wouldn't produce anything at all. And so then I did some follow-up work with the organization to just be like, what's going on? And found out, you know, just through a little bit of investigation, that there was no, like, plan of action implemented, no you know, leadership training, nothing that, that showed or trained them on how they can go and, and start looking for this type of, you know, these types of opportunities. I mean, the people that came down and started this were able to use unique networking capabilities that they had with other people that were down there in the immediate aftermath of this, this, afqu- this earthquake, this disaster, and they were able to coordinate something. That's not standard. It's not normal. And they had a specific set of skills that they were able to you know, used to connect with other people at these, you know, very unique events that aren't going to come up for these Haitians that have then been left in charge of this thing. So then when when the the founders of this organization leave, they're perplexed why these Haitian kids can't seem to be successful. We showed them the model. We gave them the resource. I don't know what to do. All the while, look how great we are. We set up the first 3D printing workshop in Haiti. Aren't we amazing? And I'm watching these kids going like, what do we do? I have no idea. How does this work? Also some differences too, where in the industry that I'm working, the beneficiaries are people that are assumed to be destitute and grateful for whatever resource can be sort of tossed their way, right? So there's not a lot of accountability because anything you do is considered good. Whereas in the cannabis industry, I don't know what kind of accountability there is, but there's always financial accountability, right? You know, so if you have a farm, and you're a grower and you're being given bad advice by a, a, an influencer who doesn't really know what they're talking about but they've you know they look the part and they're doing all the things that you and I have discussed before um, if they're not helping you grow and produce there's immediate accountability and that's where somebody like Scott regardless of any kind of controversy that you cause there's going to be always a market for what you do because you know what you're doing right Right, you know, and so there's, and, and I think we'll get to that, that state pretty soon in the, you know, international development industry. But that's going to take time, you know, based on you know, people seeing what it is that we're actually doing. But there's always going to be some sort of immediate accountability when you have a profit motive and, and people are losing their jobs, you know. So, yes, lots of parallels with all the things that you've discussed, but there's also going to be some differences, I think, in terms of sort of approaches taken and, and motives for, for people being involved as well. I see like a lot of times a remarkable lack of accountability in that you know you have a situation where a farm <clears throat> will have an opportunity at a new scale that's much bigger than they would have ever dreamed of and there's a lot of this like pay to play stuff going on so it's like here make an Instagram photo of our soil we'll pay you to take it and you put it and, and, and grow with it and a lot of times those soils are remarkably inappropriate for the task and so it's like short-term Instagram fame with a little bit of check that ultimately starts undermining your business from day one what's an obstacle for me as a consultant is you know we discover these concepts under the, the strict privacy of you know attorney-client privileges we don't talk about these things and so a lot of times it would be remarkably inappropriate for me to then say this publicly that uh, you know maybe this was a really poor choice but because of that that ball was already set into motion with the insta famous and the branding and the 
that more people just continue to follow that same path of non-success. But I have 3,000 followers, so I'm not <laughs> successful. Right. That's like, really strange to me that, like I can immediately see how Instagram exposure helps the field I'm in, right? Branding, so company X wants to donate a certain amount of money to organization Y that's doing some positive thing in, in some developing country somewhere, right? And they do that so that they can then have the the positive imagery associated with their brand. There's no accountability on are they actually helping the people, right? They're way far away in some some place, you know, that that will look regardless of what whether what they did was a positive impact or not. There's a ton of photos that make it look like it was a positive impact. So I can see that's kind of the model that you're talking about, right? So I can see how that works in international development because nobody ever is going to But again, in your industry there are people that, regardless of how many Instagram followers a consultant has, if the plant dies, it's dead. Or, or if it produces something that's not of quality, then, then it's, that's it. The proof is in the pudding. So regardless of how many Instagram well, they, followers they someone show has, that. how does Right, but... Yeah. And so I guess what you're saying is they that, that, that failure is, is there's no way to actually show failure because mm -hmm. even the farm itself doesn't want to show failure. Sure. What, what people don't pay attention to, like we're on such a short... Um, attention span that we don't even remember 12 weeks ago that this brand posted starting photos but never gave us a flowering finished photo. <laughs> it's only the hashtag innovation and, and like brand new plants that aren't destroyed yet and then they just keep it moving and they do a couple lifestyle photos and then like they do it again and so like what's remarkable is is the general public doesn't even pick up on this stuff because they're not paying attention from start to finish of the process and so like there's a group that goes around and fire up these big facilities and over the last couple of years they've fired up like four major facilities and haven't gotten a harvest out of any of them. So it is kind of the same thing though. Oh, it's horrible. There's, yeah. no, there's no real yeah. place to go do any no. accounting of failure. No. And then so my job is accounting of failure. If I share my job, that's a remarkable problem because it does two things. It outs a farm that was having issues. Um, it outs a product and a process that's issues. Um, but then the really nasty consequence is I can't then show the great benefit that came from that. It's a really difficult thing to navigate because I'm getting way left field. I mean, no, it, yeah, not, well, that's, that's actually the whole thing. It's, 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 it's how do you, because it, highlighting and showing the failure right. that is perpetuating is if there's no way to actually show that, and that's, that is almost exactly what I'm going through too. Like there's, so we went through distributing these uh, water filters. When I first went down, we distributed those. Through time, I saw for a variety of reasons that we don't have to go into now, just for interest of time, that they're actually having a negative impact on the communities that, that we were working in. That's where we're now at the place where we're gathering rainwater because that's actually what is addressing the needs of the people. It's not this weird little filtration system. climate change that is happening and some of the food instability that is coming, the people that have the biggest opportunity to make an impact from my perspective is the organic cannabis growers. I feel like Jesse and I are running parallels in two completely different worlds in that we're legitimately doing heavy, heavy lifting. Like he's doing significant aid work in the trenches where nobody wants to go amongst a world where people are lying about it 
building fake industries and mining from the Haitians, right? So he's actually doing real work. The obstacle he's up against is even some of the projects he's taken over, it's had to be for some of these failed projects that cause more detriment than benefit. And so what's the complexity of dealing with that scenario as him as a person that's actually doing this lifting? But we can interview this really intelligent, interesting person and I hope people will draw their own parallels to what I'm doing is my approach. Yeah. And even still, I think Jesse has had a little bit of his own understanding in that even though he's still real doing the aid work, there's been some complications with some of the approaches, you know, and so he, you know, has to navigate that situation. And so we're kind of all in the same realm in organic agriculture. We're in a situation where people are giving really bad advice that's not working and they don't want to own up to that accountability. How do we transition into that accountability in a functional way that doesn't destroy businesses because that's why everybody else falls in line because they're afraid they're gonna get their business toward a shit like I am. And so it's like, how do we intelligently and with class enter into a new realm of cooperative engagement that starts with somebody taking accountability for what's not fucking working? And so I think like the only way we can get to that point is if we work through a lot of what Jesse's been through, you know, because he has done the heavy lifting, he has battled some real shenanigans, he's tried to organize a, um, you know, a, a community center that's rife with mining operations from the mainland, you know what I mean? Like, and, and how, do you, how do you create something that's actually beneficial to the people amongst all that bullshit? And I feel like that's exactly the place that I'm in in organic agriculture. There is, there is waste streams being re-diverted and rebranded to, to organic agriculture that is causing people to lose their farms because it's really bad inputs and it's really bad advice. And so like when I personally look at the global issues of how do we deal with some of this stuff and some of this climate change that is happening and some of the food instability that is coming, the people that have the biggest opportunity to make an impact from my perspective is the organic cannabis growers. They're already subversive, they're already finding their own lane, they're already resourceful, they're already adaptable and they're the ones that's given the biggest short end of the stick and they're being taken out the quickest because the advice they're given is bad, the inputs they're given are actually waste streams. You know, I feel like some major direction change needs to be made there so that we can have an opportunity to properly educate and prepare the people that have the best opportunity to actually make change. But how do we get to that point? It comes down to the first point where your cannabis growers are now going to buy fertilizer at the store and don't even realize that like at the end of the day they're giving money to the enemy that's trying to put them out of business. Right. You know, and that's, uh, I don't think there's any other ag industry that has less of a consciousness of the entire wheel they're involved with in cannabis. And a lot of that started with $4,000 pounds. But now that we're down to thousand dollar, fifteen hundred dollar pounds, having to work harder, having to pay taxes, all these sort of things. It's like probably should figure out some efficient ways to produce some clean medicine. Because otherwise you're gonna get put under. Right. Exactly.